Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I had actually experienced incredible Australian art and I had become very interested in the art scene here and I had found Australians very open and curious and not cynical like the Brits can be about contemporary art and I just thought this looked like a challenge that I was ready for. How do you take an almost moribund organisation and turn it into one of the most loved, vibrant and viable in the land? Who actually takes on such a project, especially when newspaper headlines have written it off as empty of customers and a place for wankers, pardon the fruity language? Well, that project was the Museum of Contemporary Art, nestled right on Sydney Harbour foreshore at West Circular Quay. And the entrepreneur who changed its fortunes is Liz Ann McGregor the Scotland-born Director of the Museum of Contemporary Art, or MCA, for the past 22 years. Not only has she worked financial and artistic miracles on the museum that was literally set to go bankrupt back in 1999 when Lizanne was lured down under from the UK to take on the job, but she has built up both a business and a museum for audiences to engage with. And along the way, she helped cement the MCA's position as one of Australia's most loved and internationally respected cultural institutions. So how on earth did she do that? These days, the MCA boasts being the most highly attended museum of contemporary art in the world. But does she think of herself as a business builder and entrepreneur? Well, let's find out. Hope you enjoy my chat with Lizanne McGregor. Lizanne McGregor, welcome to Build It Thou Come. Thank you. It's a great, great title. Oh, thank (laughs) you. Well, it's a podcast about entrepreneurs who build something sustainable, something substantial. So you definitely fit that description, which we'll explore in this podcast. But you're possibly known in the wider Australian community as, oh, that's Scott who runs the Contemporary Museum in Sydney. Let's start with how you first became the director of the Museum of Contemporary Art, the MCA. How did that approach happen? Well, as often happens in our world, it was initially by a headhunter and I didn't pay much attention. I had just opened a project, a a new building for the Icon Gallery in Birmingham, and it had been an incredibly difficult project. And I was thrilled with it finally being open and I was looking forward to running it. However, two men became very important here, a certain John Caldor and Simon Mordant, and Simon in particular. And they eventually wore me down. They rang me. I had interviews with them. John started sending me flowers. And so eventually I looked at a map and I thought, well, where do I want to go next? And I had been to Sydney and I loved the museum. I thought it was the most incredible place. I knew it had a lot of problems, but I was up for the challenge. And so I, after about three or four months of this wooing, I decided to up sticks and come. So at the time, you were in Birmingham, you had a good job, you ran the Icon Gallery, you'd had a number of years there, and a job you loved to come down to Sydney. Why on earth did you do that? I think it was the challenge. And I had been to Australia several times, and unlike many of my colleagues who 
some of whose comments about me leaving are not to be repeated. I had actually experienced incredible Australian art and I had become very interested in the art scene here. And I had found Australians very open and curious and not cynical like the Brits can be about contemporary art. And I just thought this looked like a challenge that I was ready for. So you didn't think, even though you had been here, you didn't think, oh God, that's at the ends of the earth. Why would I go there? I I didn't because I'd been here. And I think also because I'd grown up in Orkney, which is very remote. I worked in Birmingham, which is only an hour and a half from London, but it might as well be the end of the world as far as Londoners are concerned. So I had this experience, if you like, being on the margins. And I had always been very interested at Icon in bringing artists from countries where you would not have assumed there would be lots of art. There was a lot of snobbery in the art world. It was all about Europe and North America. My mandate at the Icon had been South America and artists from different culture backgrounds. So that was what drove me, was actually looking at places that you wouldn't expect a museum of contemporary art to flourish. So you mentioned two men, John Caldor and Simon Mordant, who were instrumental in you coming. And of course, art lovers will know who they are, John Caldor being a major force in Australian art over many, many decades and a donor and philanthropist, Simon Mordant as well, and a collector. But when you came, you found a very different picture, perhaps, at the MCA than the one you had been sold on in the interviews at well, the case. I, I knew there were big financial problems. That was absolutely clear. And you could not have avoided that. And just before I got here, the head of marketing, this is snail mail still. We only just got email, remember, sent me a package of cuttings. And I must admit, my heart sank. So it was so things this is like 1999. This is 1990, yeah, mid 1999. And the state government had just given the museum a bailout, a one off grant to stop it literally closing its doors. The University of Sydney had been pulling its money out. They set it up, but their, their ambition had always been for it to be entirely private. And that had proven very, very difficult. There is no museum in the world that doesn't have a base of either public funding or a big endowment. So it was hardly surprising the poor old museum was faltering. And so I got this package and the headlines were great gallery, shame about the art or the gallery that no one goes to or my favorite money for wankers. (gasps) So I was (gasps) like, oh, what have I done? But then I was used to the British tabloids. So I had in the back of my mind, oh, this is just tabloid nonsense, even though it was I hate to say also the Sydney Morning Herald, so let's not just blame. So you thought it was hyperbole. I thought it was hyperbole. Very true. It was very true. But there was, as often happens in art, and I found this also in Birmingham, a mismatch between, if you like, the opinion formers, like the politicians and the newspapers, and the people on the ground. So what there was here was actually a strong support for the museum. There were fantastic donors. There were artists who wanted to reconnect. But before we get to that, because I think you initiated a lot of that, or or you helped spark a lot of that. How many visitors was the MCA getting before you came or when you came? It was getting pretty bad. It was down below 100,000 a year. 100,000 a year. And partly that was to do with the door charge. The museum was charging. The Art Gallery of New South Wales has always been free. And people's perception of contemporary art was being framed by negative stories in the media. It's all, you know, pickled sharks and it's a load of rubbish and people don't want to go to it. So that fear of the unknown, I think, put a lot of people off. They couldn't just, they didn't want to part with their $12 if they were going to see a load of rubbish. And because they were being told it was a load of rubbish in the media, it was a, it was a vicious circle. So was the MCA on the verge of bankruptcy when you absolutely, took over? Absolutely. I can remember having conversations with the then chairman about paying the milk bill 
or not. It was very, very close. And we were very fortunate that one off bailout from Bob Carr was actually enough to keep us going for my first six months. And then thereafter, there were a group of people who stepped up and guaranteed some of it. And then the big one was going free. All right. Before we get to that, is it true that only when you got here, you realised that you really only had funding for just a couple more weeks of payroll? No, I, I actually knew before I came that it was pretty bad. I mean, I knew that... The, 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 well, you are up for a challenge. <laughs> I thought there was enough support to get us through a year and get financial support and that I had about a year to actually secure a new deal to underwrite the core running costs. So you never, when you got here, you never felt like turning around and pulling up stumps? Oh, many times. Many times. I nearly, I mean, within 48 hours, I nearly went home, <laughs> I have to be honest. It turned out that certain board members had a very different view of what should be done from me. So um, there was, it was it was very tricky in the in the beginning. So you had a clash with the board within forty eight hours. Absolutely, wow. I did. How did you resolve hard. that? Did your will I override theirs? Pretty much, yeah. I made it pretty clear that I had come to run the museum and that not just to be the artistic director, which was one idea. And uh, the, therefore, there was clearly some business person who was going to sort things out. But I stuck to my guns. I mean, there were a lot of very well-meaning people who thought they had ideas to fix it. Most of them were well-intentioned, but actually impossible. And so I spent a lot of time explaining why some of their ideas were impossible. So it was quite frustrating in some ways. So you, your role was director. So you weren't Absolutely. just artistic director, you were CEO. Yeah, which meant I was responsible for the strategy to resolve the, the issues. And I knew I'd identified the biggest issue was perception. It was the perception of the museum as elitist. And that was putting off politicians because nobody's going to give money to something that only appeals to a certain demographic. And that perception is something that I have spent my entire career challenging. So that's why I relished the opportunity was to see whether Australia was really any different. You know, I remember one board, ex-board member saying to me, oh, funny it was in Melbourne. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you go to Melbourne, go to a dinner party, everybody's sitting around the dinner table talking ideas. Go to Sydney, they're out on the balcony, admiring the view, talking about real estate. <laughs> they don't want contemporary art. And then there were the politicians' advisors. <laughs> well, I was determined to prove that it wasn't. And then there were the political people who said, we don't need a museum of contemporary art. We've got the harbour. So there was a lot of um, So you were fighting against a lot, a lot of forces. Which was perception, because I had and continue to have a strong belief in contemporary art being able to reach many more people than those kinds of assumptions would, would, would allow you to think. We'll get to that too, because that's a really important part of your sort of entrepreneurial way you really moved the museum forward, in my view. But how did you get through that crisis? Probably lasting in the first couple of years. You said the first six months was tricky, then the first year, but the funding crisis. How did you really manage that? So we were just incredibly careful with the money, just watching it all the time, watching the cash flow, forget about P&L, watch the cash flow, watch the cash flow, make sure you've exactly got money like coming any in. Business. Exactly like any business. And yeah, it did get very close at times, but I was always able to pull some more money in, whether it was talking to a donor or someone, you know, one of our sponsors. And that, of course, became a very big issue because Telstra came to the rescue uh, in, with regards free access. So we had been talking to Telstra, couldn't quite get the right thing across. And then I was very fortunate. I did an interview for Channel 9 about this magnificent show of work from Arnhem Land that we had on from Manigrida. 
And I stood in the middle of the gallery and I said, wouldn't it be wonderful for more people to see this incredible work? This is a side of contemporary art that people probably don't know about. And Our own Indigenous art from Arnhem absolutely. Land in Northern and Australia. And so the headline in the paper was open but empty. <laughs> but the Telstra people we'd been dealing with rang up and said, free access, would that be something we could sponsor? How much do you make in a year from free access? And I said, the projection for the next year is $514,000. And they said, okay, that's what we'll sponsor. So they cash flowed us. Wow. They and gave you just over half a million just bucks. Just over half a million. And you were able to offer free admission. Immediately. Yeah. Was that your idea to go for free admission? Is that what you thought really would be a game changer? Or was it just, we'll try this and see whether that works? No, it was a condition of my appointment. So I told the board I wasn't interested in running a, a museum that charged because of my belief in making it accessible to all. And they said, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, that's all very well, but we, we have a big financial crisis. So if you want to do it, it has to be cash neutral, which is why I set out to find a sponsor that would pacify the board's um, concern, understandable concerns that we were going down the wrong track. I also had a lot of data because there's a lot of work being done around if you actually don't charge, you can get people to give money in other ways, whether it's donations or whether it's spending in your shop or in your cafe. The bigger the footfall, the more the expenditure in the shops and cafes. So there was a very good business case for actually going free. But naturally, they were a little sceptical as to whether people would come even if it was free. Going back to my earlier comment about if only it was in Melbourne. Yeah. So there was and a lot when, of trepidation. When did you get free admission? The so we went from free Telstra? Uh, in May 2000. So that was the opening. Our Olympic of, year. And of exactly. course, we had a big influx of tourists that year too. And it was the opening of the Sydney Biennale. Now, the Sydney Biennale had also suffered from accusations of elitism, had been decried regularly by the so-called art critics and so on. And so they were also, in the view of my marketing people, another damaged brand. And they said, why would you put two damaged brands together? And I said, because we have to have faith in our product, which is contemporary art. So I'm not going to go down the road of let's do something easy that, I mean, as soon as you start thinking about what people might appreciate, where do you stop? You know, you have to really back your product and then make it accessible. And that's been my mantra. Make people feel comfortable. Give them answers to their questions. Don't shut them out by using language that they don't understand. The art itself can be complex, but let's make challenging art accessible. And that was really my mantra. I did have a lot of sleepless nights before we went free, I must admit. But I was so thrilled. Why? That, because I was worried that my doubters were the doubters were correct. That the people Maybe would Australians not would not like. They were, the they were all at Bondi and they wouldn't come to the museum. They were all too busy sitting on their balconies. And in fact, as soon as we opened the doors, we were packed. And two Sundays after we went free, we had to shut the museum because we reached capacity. It was incredible. People walking, chatting, having a great time, discussing, laughing at work, saying, I don't understand all that, but actually in a good spirit in exactly as it should be, you know, making up their minds. I like that one. I don't like that one. So that kind of atmosphere just immediately happened. It was remarkable. I thought it would take a lot longer. Do you remember how many visitors it increased by in that first yes, year or two? It, I do. It went to 300,000. So it trebled, but it was only one strategy. There were several others. One of them was again to try and make people feel comfortable. So we initiated a child guides program where children would guide you through the museum. Fantastic we forged, idea. Yeah, How it was really successful great. was that? It was really fantastic. It was really great uh, with Fort Street Primary, actually. So it was really wonderful. Then we 
right from the beginning, I had been very interested in how we engaged in Western Sydney because I was concerned that we had this image of only being for a certain kind of people from That's the right. eastern you suburbs. That's right. You were on the harbour side. Right. You were only for the elites of the eastern suburbs and maybe the lower North Shore. Exactly. So we forged a partnership with Blacktown City Council and the mayor of Blacktown and his councillors were one of the first groups that came to the Biennale of Sydney. We ran a bus for the councillors and people from Blacktown to come and visit the MCA. And I'll never forget taking uh, Alan Pendleton, the mayor of Blacktown, around and he looked around the museum and he said, well, he said, I came here out of curiosity because you so generously come to Blacktown and offered to partner with us in helping us build a gallery in Blacktown. I didn't think contemporary art was for me, but you know, there are things here that I really like. And that for me was it, you know, it's like, why would someone like him think it wasn't for him? And how can we overcome that? And so there is a fantastic story um, about how Western Sydney saved the MCA. Western Sydney Western saved Sydney the MCA. Saved the MCA because Blacktown Council wrote to the government and said what a wonderful organisation the MCA is. The mayor went on Alan Jones and talked about his festival and how one of the highlights was going to the MCA. And gradually the advisors to the government realised that we weren't just elitist and we weren't just for certain kinds of people. And most of all, uh, we weren't going to be on. They weren't going to be on the front page of the Daily Telegraph if they gave us some money. So you have since then forged more relationships with galleries in the west of Sydney, Campbelltown, Penrith and Blacktown, as you mm. say. And that's still a very strong relationship? Absolutely. I was out in Kingswood on, only on last Saturday launching a program called Skirts, which is an artist who's been working with women about issues of safety in the community. So it's a way of where artists can work um, in different contexts and address different issues. And the first one we did, which seemed to me to be really fantastic in terms of how do you quickly change your image, was we forged a partnership with the Penrith Panthers. And so for a Museum of Contemporary Art and a Rugby League club, it's pretty unusual, unusual for the club. And the club also saw the benefit in working with us because they wanted to change their image. And so we had this great coming together and we did this, we did actually did three fantastic projects with artists, with the Panthers. And so did that help bring more of their supporters into the absolutely, gallery? Absolutely. And it broke down that barrier about, again, it's not for me. I mean, oh goodness me, that, and you know, it's not far Yet many of the children we bring from um, Western Sydney have never seen the harbour. You know, they might live an hour away, but they've never at Campbelltown, Airds, those kinds of places that sometimes those young people have never seen the harbour. So that became very important to us to give them access to this magnificent city of ours, but also through the lens of art. Yeah. And of course, you still have a lot of programs for disabled children and children disadvantaged as well. Access for all has been a bit of a mantra. You then started to really get a move on with squeezing funding and donations from individuals and governments to expand the museum and build your new wing. Now, in a way, was that another challenge to get I the money? I swore I would never do it because I'd done the project in Birmingham and it was incredibly difficult. And I said, I am never what, to build a doing new building. an expansion or a building project again in my life. I'm never doing it. And the other thing was there were two previous attempts to expand the museum, both of which involved international architectural competitions, neither of which were built. And that history was very vexed. Um, there was a moment where... Um, and very raw. It was a bad very experience, difficult. Was it? Well, it was very difficult. And the, the solution at one stage to the museum's financial wars um, was to knock the building down and rebuild it. So that initiative by the City of Sydney was uh, uh, interesting, but somewhat... Um, 
let's just say it was an interesting time. Uh, the, len- the then Lord Mayor had been a great supporter. He was very interested in helping us. This is Frank Sato. Frank, yeah, he was interested in helping, but his solution was really architectural, whereas my solution is always around programs. And so we had a bit of a clash. We fell out and then we made up again. Thank goodness. And of course, Frank went on to be uh, the arts minister in the state government and was the person who really helped us get the money for the expansion that we finally did do. So why did I do it? Well, one day a board member rang me and he said, I can't get in the front door. There are three school groups and it's impossible, Lizanne. This is ridiculous. So I realized that the physical problems of the building, the circulation, uh, the lack of access there for people with disabilities. There were in that original building. Very there. difficult. I mean, the, the previous regime had done a very good job of, of altering it from an office building into a gallery. But with the numbers coming through, it was impossible. It was exacerbating all the problems. And museum visitors had high expectations. We didn't have an informal cafe. We had a lovely restaurant. We didn't have somewhere you could just go and sit down and have a cup of coffee halfway through your visit. Uh, We had no facilities for education and we were building our education programs. It was another part of our strategy to be more accessible. And all the activities were happening in the galleries. So, of course, there was a clash. Somebody would come in, noisy kids running around, they couldn't see the art. So I realized that if we didn't take on the expansion, we would very quickly start to decline again because people would go, you can't get in, it's a bad experience, we're not enjoying it. So we had to think about it from a very pragmatic standpoint. The GFC in 2008 and nine really threw you a curveball about this building funding, didn't it? And, and obviously a lot of wealthy people were hit in this country mm. and, and around the world. Did that throw you a curveball? Well, the timing was interesting. We finally got our plans together. We ran a lot of consultations. We learned a lot from the international competitions that failed. So we had a lot of consultation before we went public. I think we had 70 consultation meetings and then we went public. And we were very fortunate that the wonderful Simon and Catriona Mordant stepped up and tripled their pledge, but they made a condition that we had to get the final bit of funding in within before the end of that financial year. So that was like about three months, I think, from memory. And that really meant the federal government because, of course, the federal government by this point, we're putting money back into the economy to stimulate the economy. After and the was, GFC, yeah. After the GFC. You remember the shovel-ready mantra of the, of the Rudd government? So we were shovel-ready. And so I was running around trying to get access to all these ministers and their advisors. And I had a bit of luck, actually, because I was uh, Jeff Dixon was on our board and someone had tipped me off about this Former thing called CEO the Chairman's Qantas. Lounge. And I said to Jeff, could I get access to the chairman's lounge so that I can very politely, um, you know, get to know some Corner of these people. politicians <laughs> I want to meet? So that, that is the story of how the chairman's lounge helped me get them. And it, it was terrible because we were falling. They had very rigid categories and we didn't fall. Education, you had to be an educational institution like a university. So we didn't fall into that bucket. And then there was another bucket and then another bucket and another bucket. And then finally we were able to crack it. In fact, it was Anthony Albanese who rang me to say, we've got a jobs fund if you're shovel ready, I think we can. I think we can go and we can help you. So the final tranche of funding fell into place. <laughs> so you got your building, your new building, building, which is the fabulous the wing, sort of entrance the wing, wing. And, yeah, yeah, and 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 that solved all the circulation problems. It was brilliant. I mean, it wasn't a big flash competition, but boy, does it work! You know, all the numbers stacked up. We had to do a very, very careful business plan to persuade the board. And the last thing I wanted to do was expand and not have enough money to run it. 
you know, I'd inherited it bankrupt. The last thing I wanted was to put it back there. So we very carefully, um, we did a fantastic business plan. We then road tested it with an external consultant to make sure all our assumptions were right. We created new venue spaces. So you got more income cafe, streams. Income streams to cover the increased running costs. So we were very cautious. Did that prove to be a real step change in the way the museum became more accessible, more inviting to audiences? Well, we'd reached half a million in the old building and since opening in reopening in 2012, we have doubled. So we became over a million visitors in 2019, which actually made us the highest attended Museum of Contemporary Art in the world. And that was verified by the art newspaper who actually published that. Now, I'm not comparing us to the Tate, remember, because they show Matisse. This is museums and galleries that only show contemporary art, not modern art. And contemporary, just for those who may be still a little bit confused, you mean living artists? <laughs> we, our definition is living artists. Some other museums will have 30, 40 years. Some artists will talk postmodern rather than modern, but we, we define it by living artists. So you've also developed this extraordinary relationship with the Tate Gallery in London. Just explain what that is and what it's done for the MCA in Sydney. So when I came... I was horrified at the attitude of my colleagues towards Australia. It was too far, too white, too, you know, no, under, no understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art, re- really incredibly um, disparaging attitudes. I did realize it was mostly framed by home and away and neighbors, which was the main way that people in the UK <laughs> saw Australia. So challenging that's always been something I've been interested in and really promoting Australian art in the UK in particular, because that was my, you know, my home, my homeland. And so I had a great opportunity. I was involved with Qantas with the foundation and they were winding the foundation up and they had a, 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 a corpus of money that had come from selling off their collection. And I said to them, now listen. Sorry, you, this is Qantas's this is Qantas own collection. Foundation. They sold their collection and established a foundation under Jeff Dixon, the CEO. Fast forward a few years, foundations can be problematic often. And so they decided they wanted to wind it up. But there was a chunk of money which they were going to give to charities. And I said, you need to do something for art because it came from art. And they thought that was a great idea. But they said, what should we do? And I said, well, I think one of the biggest issues we face is getting Australian artists into major museums around the world. They're now being exhibited. Lots of curators now come here. They've all discovered how fabulous it is. So they're quite happy to make the long journey, but actually getting it acquired is a very different thing. And getting the artist shown overseas exactly. is so, difficult. So we proposed to Qantas that they might use some of that money for a program with the Tate in London. And I rang Sir Nicholas Sorota, the director, and I said, what do you think? And he said, what a great idea. And so we worked this um, co-acquisition program. So we actually own so the work jointly. So they put money in, you no, put money we put in. put all the money in. You put all the money in. Qantas put all the money in in 2015. It was a gift from the Qantas Foundation. And that, over the last five years, has enabled us to buy the work of 27 Australian artists with the Tate, many of whom have already been shown alongside their international peers. However, next month, they will be opening a major display of some of the co-acquisitions. And that's the first time they have actually shown contemporary Australian art in this way, in a very serious way. So it's a very exciting and breakthrough moment, really. And I think 
Even more of a breakthrough is the fact that one of the latest acquisitions is a bark painting by John Marnjol. And it may sound odd to Australians, but to get the international art world to consider bark paintings as contemporary art has been a very long and interesting journey. So it was a huge breakthrough moment when my colleagues at the Tate uh, unveiled the John Marnjol and put it into the galleries last week. Can I just say, I mean, that is one of the what I think you should consider one of your proudest moments. I mean, Australians, you know, of course have a great love of Indigenous art. But as you say, bark paintings, they sort of think, maybe is that like 1950s, 1960s, 70s art? Stick it in the British Museum. Put it in the Met, not in the Museum of Modern Art. Well, you had John Moanjal down to the gallery, what, was that before COVID? Yes, or, yeah, yeah, before 2018, COVID. yeah. An extraordinary man who is still painting sitting cross-legged with a hugely long haired brush doing those incredibly fine lines. It's beautiful it's work. So Absolutely beautiful, beautiful so work. Congratulations so congratulations on it's a very getting moment. him yeah. overseas. Let's jump forward to COVID-19 hitting and the pandemic of 2020. New normal of we still don't know how we're all going to end up out of this. How difficult was that year for the MCA? But equally, did it help maybe with donations? Well, I thought I'd seen it all. I'd seen bankruptcy, I'd seen the GFC, and which of course affected the business of the museum. But the biggest issue for us is our venues. That's a very, very large proportion of our income, uh, some $4 million a year in weddings and parties and, and et cetera, et cetera, when et cetera. You say- Venue um, venues, you mean the beautiful rooms, yes. you have rooftop gardens and cafes and restaurants yes. that you can hire out exactly. for yeah, weddings So we events. run a venues business. I, I run a weddings business. It is a business. And our government funding is only 22%, which is very low. So anything that affects people spending or people ha- being able to come together to have parties and weddings and, and product launches and business events and so on was devastating. So overnight, we lost $4 million effectively. It was like from February last year, that was it for the year. It was horrible, I have to say. Fortunately, the federal government JobKeeper scheme came in and that was the lifeline initially. That was the thing that really stopped us having to lay off 30% of our staff, which was one of the 20 scenarios we worked through when COVID hit. Very, very scary. And so JobKeeper absolutely kept us going. And then we ran our annual appeal and our donors stepped up big time. So it was really Really? fantastic. So even at a time when they couldn't actually physically come to the gallery, they still supported you? Absolutely. And we were trying very hard to make sure that we maintained our accessibility. We put lots of things online. But then we discovered that many of the schools we work with in Western Sydney, 40% of the children don't have access to the internet. Well, relatively easy access, you know. So we had to rethink. So I rang the editor of the Daily Telegraph and I said, are you doing anything? Can we put anything in the paper so that something physical will will reach young people? And so we ended up doing the creative content for the Daily Telegraph's hibernate section they did during COVID, which was activities for people to do at home. And our artist educators did a whole series of uh, activities that we wrote up and sent off and they got printed. And of course, it got distributed right through the News Limited network. Extraordinary. So Daily Telegraph being the the daily tabloid newspaper of New South Wales. But that was a great initiative of yours. We were very pleased. Well, we were just listening to our partners. So our principals in the major schools that we were were working with, of course, the focus was on secondary schools because of exams and so on, but the primary schools, big problems. And we also set up a, a system where we had actually had packages that we sent out with activities for people to do. 
How many, how much more in donations did you get? I mean, did it So the jump? annual appeal went from, uh, it was 10 times, it was tenfold up. Tenfold up in. Yeah. I mean, there was what, to be honest, there was COVID. one very big donation, very big. So from an individual. From an individual. Wow. Very big. So that was fantastic. You so, can't say who. Um, I'm, it's fine if you don't want to. But she don't know. I do know, but I don't know whether I can or not. No. Okay, no, that's but, fine. Um, what did you learn about yourself as a leader through that particular crisis in 2020? I think the thing that we all learned is you have to continue to be positive. And it was very easy for everybody to get, oh, they're all in their bubbles and everybody's at home and it's very hard to, it's very hard to motivate staff and get people together and so on. And you just have to try that. I think the job of the leader in that is to be the positive one. We will get through this. It will be fine. We will get more donations and tr- try and keep people's spirits up, I think was the really, really the main thing. Let's step back. You were born in Dundee, which is northern Scotland, north of Edinburgh. Northeast, yeah. Well, actually it's east. North of, north of Edinburgh, Edinburgh and, yes. and Glasgow, though. And you grew up in the beautiful Orkney Islands in very much further north in, uh, in Scotland, certainly from this distance, a very remote part of the world. How do you think that impacted you as a person? Well, it was an extraordinary uh, school I went to. Um, I studied five languages. I had one-on-one teaching in Italian. And Orkney is one of those places where people either leave when they're quite young and they go off and do amazing things. I remember my biology teacher had been to Chile in the revolution, you know, but had come back to have a family. Or there are people who want to get away from the rat race. So you get extraordinary teachers. It was a very, very amazing school um, for all children of all backgrounds. Um, there is very little private education in Scotland. 6% of children go to private school in Scotland. So it's a very different feel. So and it was all public schooling yeah, that, that yeah, you went to. Yeah, very strong public school. And um, music was my thing, a very musical school. Um, and I played in the Youth String Orchestra of Scotland. And until I was 16, I thought I was going to go to music college. But then my maths teacher told me it'd be a shocking waste of a good brain. <laughs> so I kind of gave up music. I didn't give it up, but I, I stopped thinking about music school. But it was amazing. And we had incredible freedom, you know, to, to, to do things, outdoor activities at the weekends, you know, sailing, swimming in the freezing cold water, um, exploring and all kinds of things. It was a really extraordinary upbringing. I was very lucky. Beautiful landscape too. I have actually been to Orkney mm. and I think it's stunning. But your father was a clergyman and then became a bishop in the Scottish <laughs> Episcopal Church. Well, my, my father was a bit of a rebel. He, he actually left school at 16, went into industry, found himself uh, progressing, but finding it the ethics of business quite hard, laying people off, etc., etc. So he went to university very late in life, uh, felt the call, went and studied divinity at St. Andrews, went into the Church of Scotland, wasn't quite up to what he thought. It was very regimented. He got into trouble because he organized football matches on a Sunday for the young, you know, he was involved in the youth club. I mean, things, silly things like that. His best friend was the local atheist that didn't go down too well with the hierarchy. You know, that, that he was a rebel really. And my mum, the two of them very, um, um, really believed in, I was brought up with foster kids all my life. You know, um, I have a youngest sister who's adopted. So they, they had that philosophy of caring for others. And so he left the Church of Scotland and eventually found his way into the Scottish Episcopal Church and became a bishop, much to our amusement as a family, I have to say. And Which yes, was a much more progressive church. Much more progressive church. In fact, it's the first church to marry uh, gay couples in church. And so much more, he found it much wow. more freedom and, and ability. He'd always been 
involved in challenging the hierarchy. He believed in women, women, women priests. He would, used to marry gay couples or bless them, maybe not quite legally, but for a long time. So he had that kind of philosophy. I always think of him as a, a, a deep down, just a, a great socialist, really, really believed in helping others. So he had an enormous influence on your life or absolutely. both of them did? Both, both of them did. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my mother came from a much more privileged background, I guess, but they were a great partnership. And tragically, he died not long after I moved here. So she's been on her own for the last few years, which is why I'm very keen to get back. There is that extraordinary, massive and quite beautiful cathedral in Kirkwall, Kirkwall. which is the main town in Orkney. Now, was he, was that your church? No, we were in Stromness, so the smaller town. Other end of the island. Other end of the island, yep, yep, yep. You obviously loved your childhood there, but then you moved away. I moved away, but I did keep a connection there because there's a fantastic art centre there called the Peer Art Centre, which is a wonderful story of a, a woman who was friendly with Ben Nicholson and Barbara Hepworth and all those famous British artists and went, had a house in Orkney, left her collection to Orkney. They set up the Peer Art Centre and I became a trustee. So while I was living in uh, further south, I used to fly up every three months for a trustees meeting. So I kept a bit of a connection. So how did the passion for art history, as I understand that, that happened first before your curatorial love. But how did all that start if, you, if music was your love? By mistake. So I get to university, I'm going to study languages. And yeah, I had to take another subject, what they called an outside subject. And I went through the syllabus and being a bit cheeky as a student, ruled out anything too early in the morning, anything interfered <laughs> with lunch in the union or anything that looked hit. And I, for some reason, I just hit on art history. And from the very first lesson, I went in and I was just completely mesmerized. And that learning about the culture, I hadn't done history at school very much. So the, the culture, learning about history through culture. And I did Byzantine, I did the 17th century, didn't do any contemporary. I, was t- I found contemporary art terrifying, which I think is quite informative for how I became so passionate about how we can make contemporary less terrifying. And that was it. I switched after two years, I switched and majored in art history. In fact, with Italian, I picked my Italian up again that I'd done at school and uh, Italian and French. So tell us about the traveling gallery. So I did a year's postgrad in museum studies, which was fairly old fashioned. And at the end of it, I thought, I don't really want to work in a museum. It's a bit boring. Uh, I really want to be interacting with an audience. And that's a kind of old fashioned view of museums, of course, but someone sent me. But a it was the cutting. audience that sort of grabbed you, Indeed. that idea so of audience. The idea of the audience. So I had this cutting sent to me, which was calling for a curator driver traveling gallery. And someone said to me, I think this is your, this is your gig. So I went and I, I had this interview and it was to take a converted bus take exhibitions, organize them, take them on board the bus and take it all around Scotland. In the summer, to the highlands, to the islands, in the winter, around the housing estates of Glasgow and Edinburgh. So to reach people who either had no inclination or opportunity to go to galleries. Wow. And that was my great thing. And I realized by doing that, that it's not the art that puts people off. It's the way in which it's presented. Because everybody came on board that bus. It was bright green and red. It was like the circus comes to town. So people came in out of curiosity. There was none of it. Oh, look, that's an art gallery. That's not for me. And once they were there, if you could have a conversation and get them thinking about what they were looking at or tell them a bit more about it, people were incredibly open-minded. But you had no experience running a gallery, None. no experience in curating an exhibition? Well, I did because in my postgrad, the last bit of the postgrad, we did a joint exhibition. So I knew the basics. But what I didn't know was any contemporary art or any, certainly no Scottish art. 
So I was very lucky. I met a group of artists very early on. So my whole knowledge and understanding about contemporary art came from artists, not from art theory or from studying it. And that, I think, informs my passion for making sure that we don't talk about it in over-theoretical ways. So you took art to the people, to the audiences. Absolutely. And they may not have even known that they liked it. Exactly. What did you learn from that experience about how to really engage the community, engage audiences? Very simple customer service, make people feel welcome. And galleries were incredibly intimidating places. Mm, I remember going into contemporary galleries in London, you know, private galleries as an art student, as a a history of art student and being terrified at these people looking down. There's a famous, um, absolutely fabulous sketch where, you know, Jennifer Saunders goes into one of these and gets, you know, this snobbish person looking at her as if she shouldn't be there. And she sort of goes, oh, stop looking at me like that. It's just a big shop, you know. So there was that kind of ethos in the art world which was beginning to break down. I mean, people, certainly in public galleries, were beginning to think about how they could be more accessible. I mean, the the idea that the art speaks for itself. And I would go, well, it's not speaking to me and I have an art history degree. So what's the problem here? How do we get people to look at it? How do we encourage them to open their mind to it? How do we encourage them to think about it? It's not about explaining what it's about either. It's not about being overly didactic. It is simply about basically giving people some of the information the curator gets when they go and talk to the artist in the studio. It's fantastic nowadays because we can use uh, we can use uh, digital technologies to do that. The artists themselves can talk to you. Yeah. So it's really about, uh, you said at the very outset, using simple language, not intimidating language, not exclusionary language. Exactly. To talk about what an artist might have been thinking yeah. about, what issues might but be raised. also to encourage people to say, what does it mean to you? Don't worry about what it means. What does it mean to you? How does it make you feel? Are you interested in it because of the color or the shape or the type of work it is? So asking questions to get the viewer to actually realize it's their, they are bringing their own self to looking at a work of art. So who they are will actually affect how they respond. But in your early years, and in fact, right through your career in contemporary art, to make it more understandable, to make it more accessible, you must have come across and come up against extraordinary resistance. I don't get it. I don't understand it. You say, what does it mean to me? It's a bunch of squiggly lines and a splotch of colour. Exactly. Well, I think that's the art of of, uh, getting people to look and getting people to open their minds. And I've often, uh, yes, you get that reaction, but you know what? 90% of the time, once people relax and stop worrying about it and actually look at it, they will find something that they won't like everything. That's the other thing. You have to give people permission not to like things. And they're not stupid if they don't like it either. So they, yeah, you're not going to like everything. You might love the Richard Bell exhibition. Someone else might loathe it. They might think they're being preached at. They're going to find it really problematic. But then you can go upstairs and see the National, which has got like 13 artists with an incredible variety of work. So that idea that within a museum, you have all those different kinds of experiences. And hopefully you'll find, like the man from Blacktown, the mayor of Blacktown, you'll find something that you respond to. Back to your journey, you then took a job in Birmingham, which was, you know, probably still a troubled city uh, struggling perhaps under the Thatcher years with unemployment and restructuring of their industries, those sorts of things. But also I've heard you talk about a very white establishment in the art community. What did you try and do in Birmingham? What did you want to do there? 
So I wanted to run a gallery that reflected the city I was living in. And one in four of the population of Birmingham comes from another culture. Chinese, many, many Chinese people, many, many Indian subcontinent, Pakistan, lots of people from different culture backgrounds, a really vibrant, dynamic mix. UB40 come out of Birmingham. You know, there's lots of great reggae. You know, it was a really exciting city to live in from that perspective. Ugly as anything because of the hideousness of the 60s and the knocking down of the old buildings and the building of the motorways and all that. But actually underneath it, a really vibrant, rich, diverse cultural city. And so for the museum, the gallery, as it was to reflect that in in the artists. And once you start looking, it is not hard to do that. This was, of course, you know, the 80s and the art world was still very white. There hardly, I don't think, had been any artists from different culture backgrounds. For example, in the the Turner Prize, maybe Anish Kapoor would be an honorable exception, but never mind women, you know, there was still, it was still dominated by white men. So running a gallery in that city where we could actually showcase artists who would, whose names would resonate with those communities. And again, people would find it, oh, hang on a minute, Mona Hatoum, that might be someone I should go and look at or Parminda Kaur, maybe I should check that out or Simran Gill, um, maybe that's a name that resonates. And so trying to overcome again, those, those attitudes that art isn't for them. You came from Birmingham then to Sydney to the MCA job which is really Australia's Museum of Contemporary Art, isn't it? Absolutely, which is why we cheekily renamed it Museum of Contemporary Art Australia. We are unique because we are the only major publicly funded museum that collects, exhibits and interprets contemporary art for a broad audience. What do you think you learnt in Birmingham in that experience at the gallery that you brought with you to Australia? That People's prejudices are the same all over the world. So I had uh, initially, it was a very strong Labour Council and there was a lot of scepticism about the, about the gallery, contemporary art, not for them, not for the working classes. And I love the point where we got to where the, can, the, the, the leader of the council said, I don't know what the hell goes on down there, but we've got to have it. Um, because he <laughs> recognised that we contributed something to the city. So it was a very exciting time because the council, like I had to do with the MCA, the council was trying to change the image of Birmingham, turn it from this post-industrial struggling city into a vibrant you know, destination. And they saw culture. They built a symphony hall to keep Simon Rattle at the Birmingham Symphony orchestra, right? That was absolutely their belief in culture. So I was riding on the back of that saying, well, contemporary art is pretty good too for this. So bringing international guests in and that sort of thing and getting the councillors involved. So coming here, I didn't think it was so different, but it actually is very different. Do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur, as an innovator? I mean, in in that job in Birmingham, it sounds like you were very much disrupting the existing art status quo for a start. Um, those are new words to me, but I guess if I look back, someone, I, somebody asked me once to speak at a brand conference and I said, brand, I don't know what, I, what's a brand? I don't know what a brand is. I run a museum. They said, what yes, you've you done do. <laughs> is rebranded the museum. Now, I've never used words like that, but, and it's a bit the same with entrepreneurial and innovative and so on. I mean, I've done what I believe should be done coming from my strong belief in access and how you do that, I guess, has been a bit of a disruptor um, in some ways. You were awarded a Centenary Medal in 2001 for Service to Australian Society and Contemporary Art. And in the 2011 Queen's Birthday Honours, you were appointed an OBE, an Officer of the Order of the British Empire, in the Diplomatic Service and Overseas List, list, again, (laughs) for service to contemporary art. 
Were they very proud moments? Oh, it was hilarious that, um, you know, I get this phone call about the OBE and I just knew that my radical brother would actually like scoff madly. (laughs) But when it came to who's going to go to the palace, um, you know, suddenly all the hands went up. Um, Yeah, I must admit, I was was really touched to, to have that. And I should pay tribute here to Helen Little, who was the British High Commissioner, who said to me, you've been overlooked back in the UK. Look at all everything you did in Birmingham. I think we could have a go at getting you something that acknowledges me working between the two countries. And that's, uh, she put me forward and that's how it came about. But yeah, seeing my name in the paper was a pretty proud moment, especially for my mom. And when she went to the palace, she's such a royalist. She loved it. Every minute of it. She got to sit next to one of the Queen's bodyguards and she asked him all about what it was like at Balmoral and did the Queen really go riding on her own and so on. So yeah, it was a very proud moment. You've also staged some extraordinary exhibitions at the MCA that you've brought to Australian audiences. And just to name a few, Chuck Close, Grayson Perry, Pippalotti Wrist, Anish Kapoor, David Goldblatt, as well as wonderful Australian artists, Janet Lawrence, Sean Gladwell, John Moenchel, the fantastic Indigenous bark painter, Lindy Lee. How many people did you bring to see those artists, do you reckon, when you count it all up? <gasps> That's a good question. Well, I guess, wow, I don't know. I haven't really done that. Well, so, I guess if you added all those million. years together, yeah, yeah it would so be so several So if we start million. with 100,000 20 years ago and it, it increases exponentially up to a million, it'll be, it'll be several million. I do remember a very funny conversation with dear Frank Sartor when he was lecturing me about how I had to get half a million visitors and I'm sort of shrugging my shoulders and going, I don't know how to do that. That's incredible. How can I go from 100 to half a million? So to have gone from 100 to a million is, um, it surprises me as well. And it's not just the numbers. And, and I'm actually one of the things I hope will take away from COVID is less of an obsession with numbers because what really matters is the kind of engagement that we have and who comes. You know, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that when you walk through the museum, you see people from all backgrounds. I love the fact that you can see um, the mothers and fathers of the children that we work with from Western Sydney coming in with their kids to see the museum. That for me is the most important thing shifting the demographic, shifting it away from the usual suspects, although I love having them there too, obviously. I want to know more. I've come and seen this exhibition. Maybe I'll go online and see an artist talk. Maybe I'll come and see something at the weekend to deepen that engagement. And also the role of artists and creativity going forward, because as the jobs change, as the workforce has to change, the skills that young people are going to need have been identified as creativity, critical thinking, empathy, resilience, and collaboration. And these are all things that our fabulous artist educator team teach. So we have a very, very big role to play, all museums of contemporary art do, in terms of the future of our country. So are those the sorts of things that you regard as you come to the end of your career there, your, your role there, you're leaving it uh, in October this year, after what, almost 22 years as director, are these the sort of markers of success that you see is really important rather than just the, uh, which is a fantastic testament anyway, that you get over a million visitors a year, probably pre-COVID last year, you wouldn't have had that many. Obviously, you were closed for some time. The marker of success for me is being able to say that we have made sure that artists in this country are respected and that they do make a contribution. It's not just about 
some nice artworks on a wall that you go and see on a Sunday, that the work we do around the social impact, whether it's our art and dementia program. I just had the most incredible email this morning from one of the carers of one of the art and dementia participants, how we have fundamentally affected their lives. Right down to the under fives program we run. Under fives at Contemporary Art, you might ask. Well, that's the formative years. And we have been able to demonstrate working with Macquarie University, the impact of creativity on the under fives is phenomenal. Coming to the museum, looking at contemporary art with our artist educators and doing activities is helping those children become the citizens of the future. And so those, and everything in between, the schools in Western Sydney, all the schools who come, these are what I think are the important things, the social impact of contemporary art. Have you got one line to say what creativity does for a society? I think the thing that creativity does is it makes us uh, think differently and look beyond the obvious and welcome difference. And those are things that are incredibly important to society, particularly now when we're seeing we're increasingly fractured. Things are, you know, politics breaks us apart. We've seen what happened in America. We're seeing terrible things happening in America with, um, you know, the, the, the gap between rich and poor, black and white. It's really very, very disturbing to see the way we've been driven apart partly by social media, but also for other reasons. And I think that museums have an, and the arts in particular, visual arts, have an incredibly important role to bring people back together again and get people to respect difference. Okay. I want some of the dirt on the contemporary art scene <laughs> today. As you leave, you can't possibly love it all. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a, there was a, when I was um, trying to get the government money, there was a very nasty email that, that emanated from another gallery that said attacked me for going on and on about the audience, and I, I challenged this person, and they sort of leant across the dinner table and said, "Why can't you just tell those politicians that you need the money and it's important?" I said, "Have you ever spoken to a politician ever? Politicians are there to get elected, and until they're." constituents tell them that it's important they're not going to they're not going to give us money so let's just you know learn about that so the art world was a bit critical at the beginning i said look if i start doing disney on ice you can have a go at me <laughs> but until such time as we continue to showcase the most important in our view most important contemporary artists and not do exhibitions that in my view, pander to the lowest common denominator. It's not just about spectacle. It is about really critical exhibitions. Brief answer. What do you think of the contemporary art scene in Australia these days? I think it's extraordinarily rich and diverse. I think we have a whole generation. We have amazing artists who've been practicing. We're going to do a show next year of someone who's just turned 80, Vivian Binns, amazing woman artist. Uh, I think that the younger generation coming through also are fantastic tackling issues, making us think, um, looking at things in a new way. And uh, and I think also this new generation that are prepared to to, to teach as well, to, to hand on their, their idea of creativity. They've, my, my team have created something called the Creative Manifesto, which is all about how do you teach creativity? And a team of them are embedded in the new inner city high school at the moment. And if we can demonstrate the value of creativity right through the school, not just to teach art, but to teach everything, creativity becomes really vital to that. And that's what artists do. They teach creativity. A few quick questions that require short answers that I'm asking most of my guests. What are you obsessed about at the moment, be it a film, a cause? The marine environment, what we're doing to the oceans. I'm a scuba diver. It's my way of de-stressing. And uh, I'm deeply concerned about Australia's lack of, uh, lack of tackling of climate change. It's, uh, it's terrible to watch. What's been the most difficult part of your journey? 
Actually, I think COVID was the most challenging because I jumped in at the beginning. I knew what I was jumping into, but I was jumping. You know, I, it was new. It was, there were things that were interesting. I was able to play out these years ago, yeah. strategies. But COVID was very challenging. The thought of having to lay off 30% of the staff was one of the most devastating things I've ever had to do. And actually close your doors. Close my doors, calling Lindy Lee to tell her her exhibition was not only postponed, but I had no idea when it would take place. And I was curating it. Those two things, the, the loss of staff and having to postpone shows was devastating. What do you think has been the main ingredient in building not only a business, but a museum like the MCA? Passion for the product. And I don't mean just the art, I mean the art and the audience. That's what I regard as our as our game. So absolute passion and a belief that any obstacle to doing that can be overcome. What would you say to young people wanting to pursue an idea to be entrepreneurial or to be involved in the arts? Passion. There's a great book by um, Ken Robinson, the great educationalist, how finding your passion changes everything. And I think that's uh, that would be my word of advice. Find your passion and stick to it and realize that you won't make a lot of money necessarily, but you will have enormous fulfillment um, and finding ways of funding your passion if it's making art or, or visiting galleries or whatever. I think that's what I would uh, would, would put forward. Lizanne, what's next for you after you leave the director (laughs) role at the MCA? Well, I'm going home, I hope, if the federal government lets me out to see my mum for a while, my family and friends in the UK, but I will be coming back. I will have a base here. Uh, I'm on the board of UNICEF. I'm also on the board of the foundation of the Sydney Swans. Haven't quite decided whether I'll be in Sydney enough to keep that one up, but uh, I will be just contemplating what next. Maybe a book. I don't know. But I'm certainly not looking for another big job. I was going to say, another big arts job? Absolutely not. No, no, I'm not not in the market at all. (laughs) I want to uh, do something different. I'm very passionate about conservation. I would be interested in doing something in the conservation field. Lizanne McGregor, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.